Winning slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I am Chris Kreicho. And I'm in a sort of temporary makeshift recording booth office in the weird upstairs loft of my house. <laughs> because it's that time of year. It's just a running theme this point, listeners, that Stephen forgets to actually say his name whenever he says this part. So we're just going to run with it. I'm also Stephen Caradini. <laughs> But it's more important for you to know that I'm in an upstairs weird semi-booth made out of an extra comforter that I found so that we can have good quality sound in the midst of um, all that's going on. SARS-CoV-2! That's the thing that's happening. Hopefully, by the time that you get this in April, uh, things will be calmed down. And then hopefully by the time you get the second one, things will be really calmed down. And then by the time that we get to Jurassic Park, where we talk about the dangers of genetic engineering, we're (laughs) going to be like, oh, that thing that just happened. It's kind of like that. We can hope. We can make jokes about it, hopefully. Yes. Until then, we can can make jokes about about this. Ascending to be computers with Ray Kurzweil. I'm going to spoil the entire episode right here, listeners. Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines. We're going to do our best to give it a five-minute charitable reading, but we hated this book so much. It was was so bad. It was amazing. It was catastrophically (laughs) bad. I was amazed. (laughs) We expected it to be kind of bad. It it, it amazed (laughs) us with how bad it was. It exceeded our expectations. So here's some background. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ray Kurzweil, he is an inventor of computer technologies. He had a hand in creating a variety of different technologies, uh, some for music and computers, some for assistive technologies, uh, such as voice-to-text technologies. He's done a lot of different things in the sort of hardware-to-software space. And he, as a result of inventing things has decided that he is a futurist. If you invent things, you're allowed to predict what the future will be like when other people invent things, apparently. That's basically all that the connection is between his job and his book, (laughs) as far as I can tell. Yes. Also worth note that this is the second major book predicting the future that he wrote. The first one was The Age of Intelligent Machines, and was written a decade before this book came out. This book was published in 1999, right before the Y2K crisis hit and all of that. It makes for very interesting reading 20 years on as a result. Yep. It happened pre-Y2K, which is entertaining. There's like a section on Y2K, and you're like, huh, huh. yeah, we were concerned about that, weren't we? We really were. <laughs> Kurzweil wasn't, by the way. He was not. No, he was actually correct on that prediction. He was right. <laughs> Basically, the shorter-term predictions that Kurzweil makes, the more accurate they are. Turns out that predicting the near-term future is much easier than predicting 120 years out, especially if you get some of your axioms about the universe wrong. But first, that charitable reading. The charitable reading. So, this book is essentially a work of futurism. It's saying, what will the future be like? Now, if you're going to have 
a stance upon which you're going to predict the future. You have to state what that stance is. You can't just say, like, I made it up. And so one of the things that Kurzweil does is he actually puts forward in the first chapter a coherent, if slightly strange, reason to predict the future and a particular set of rules upon which he is going to be predicting. And those rules are Moore's Law, as a function, can be interpreted backwards and can be interpreted forwards. So Moore's Law is the axiom that computing power roughly doubles every X number of years, days, weeks, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> every 12 to 18 months was the original statement, if I recall That's right. correctly. That's right. It's, and it was but, an observation on what was actually happening in computing technologies many, many decades ago. And it was not a prediction. It was merely an observation of what actually had been happening. And largely, up until roughly the last decade, had continued to hold. That up until the last decade will be important later. It'll be on the test. It, it was a little bit of a prediction. He did think that it was going to continue to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, look at this thing that happened in the last 10 years. Computing power doubled every 12 to 18 months. It had a predictive aspect to it, which is important. Right. Because of the reasons why it right. existed. But, but it was important that it was a predictive power because this is the thing that Kurzweil hangs his entire book on which is important to note. So his argument in the first chapter is that at the beginning of the Big Bang... Yes, he seriously actually goes all the way back to the Big Bang. It does. It's, it starts literally at the, the smallest fraction of time after the actual Big Bang. And his, his argument has to do with chaos, order, and time. And Chris, you'll have to help me here because my book is trapped at my office that I'm not allowed to go to. <laughs> so you'll have to assist me with some of the quotes here. But essentially, he says that as things are massively disordered, things move slowly. And as things are ordered, increasingly, they move faster. He has a heading for his section on evolution, titled Evolution, Time Speeding Up. Curiously, he then quotes John 1 and then does nothing else with that for the rest of the book. He's he's fond of quoting things somewhat out of context. We may return to this. Well, it's it's sort of like the way that that epigrams work. Like consider yes. this as you read this section. Right. But he just has a lot of them and they head sections, <laughs> chapters, sometimes paragraphs. His frame from that point forward is that First of all, evolution is a means of computing. Specifically, he, he claims, with the invention of DNA-based genetics, invention is an important word for him throughout the text, and it's important to note here that it's not a coincidence that he's ascribing to evolution invention. This way of talking, this teleological way of talking about evolution and everything else is essential to his understanding of the universe and the way it works. Yeah. It has an end, and that end is increasing order and decreasing chaos as you follow the arrow of time. Yeah. So with the invention of DNA-based genetics, evolution had designed a digital computer to record its handiwork. He then goes on and says that once we get to humanity, you get a human-sponsored variant of evolution— technology. And he describes technology as, and I quote, evolution by other means. And he goes on to say that evolution through technology is in fact inevitable. From this, he ends up deriving his next axiom, 
which is that, and I quote, once life takes hold on a planet, we can consider the emergence of technology as inevitable. He then leads from this into computing specifically and his observations about Moore's law and how Moore's law has an exponentially increasing rate of returns. And from this, he derives his fundamental claims about the universe, which is that as time goes on, you get accelerating returns in an evolutionary process. And therefore, evolution itself builds on its own increasing order, order therefore increases exponentially, therefore time exponentially speeds up. Therefore, the valuable products of that process accelerate. And Moore's law is one of the critical final, in some sense, variants of that, because in his universe, in his in his worldview, technology is, and I don't think I'm doing him a disservice to state it this way, the telos of the universe. Everything is ultimately going to climax with technology of higher and higher and higher magnitudes. So he predicts, not incorrectly, that Moore's law does come to an end at a certain point in the future. And he actually says Moore's law came along in 1958, just when it was needed for, that is, technology to keep accelerating, and will have done its 60 years of service by 2018, a rather long period of time for a paradigm nowadays. A little bit later, he says, in accordance with the law of accelerating returns, another computational technology will pick up where Moore's law will have left off without missing a beat. This is his frame for the universe. And because he thinks this is a matter of how the universe works, he is very, very confident that regardless of what technological obstacles may seem to be ahead, they will certainly be overcome and the universe will keep accelerating along this technological direction because that's how the universe works. Yeah. Also, there's a point in there where he attributes intellectual capacity to the universe an infinitesimally small amount of intellectual capacity, given a particular <laughs> yes. mathematical equation that he has. But essentially, he thinks that the universe is alive. That's not a disservice. That's literally what he said. True story. Well, I shouldn't say alive. It, it can think. It can think, yes. Which is separate from being alive. Which matters for the rest of the book. It does, yeah. Thinking and being alive are different. But So it, it can think. The, the next thing that he does is sort of overview... A bunch of everything like this book does a lot of things there's there can be a lot of things badly said about it but one thing that cannot be said is that the scope here is big <laughs> yep <laughs> the scope yep. is big there's sections where he endangers some philosophers and then there's a section where he talks about sort of the recent past things that have happened how they fit into his theory of the universe and then the biggest chunk of the book is sort of an argument recapitulating the earlier argument about like why the predictions that he's about to make are valid, essentially. So it's we could call it philosophizing if it endangered any particular philosophical ideas, but it doesn't. But it's like philosophizing, and he goes through and damages certain philosophers, potentially. And then when it comes time to actually use their ideas, he's like, I don't feel like it. I'm not going to even try. <laughs> and so then he doesn't even... He would probably if he was concerned about such things, but he was not. He had already covered it in the literature review. So he's done here. 
So if I were critiquing this as a thesis, I would say like, yeah, but like you didn't use your literature to actually extend <laughs> the work farther beyond yourself. Like you, you're not in conversation with anyone. You're just talking into the air. <laughs> you're just asserting the, things. The literature review was good, I guess. I have some thoughts, but like it never comes back. Like what happened? So, so then he does that thing. We'll get to what that is in a minute. And then what he feels like is the most important aspect of the book he does a set of predictions for 2009, 2019, 2029, and 2099. And he starts off by just stating a bunch of things that he thinks will be true in various fields of life, including but not limited to technology, education, work, sex, art, and even spirituality. It is the age of spiritual machines, after all. And they are get increasingly hard to parse and so he decides that <laughs> as he goes forward through time and they get harder and harder to sort of like wrap your mind around, he decides to write fiction to explain what things will be like in the future. And he uses this character named Molly to, to sort of tell us what the future is like. And he talks directly to Molly. Earlier in the book, he's just talking to the reader. But then in the middle of the book, he reveals that the reader is actually a person named Molly. So if your name is Molly... <laughs> this book is for you. <laughs> this book is literally for you. He then does these predictions and fictions. And then he concludes with a sort of recapitulation of ideas and a little bit of philosophizing. And then includes 130 pages of back matter. <laughs> Not not exaggerating. Literally 130 it's, pages of back matter. It's a lot of back matter. I'm just going to say, I think Plato would like this book, even if he disagreed with all of it, because it's structured increasingly as a dialogue. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is. Also, it really just wants to talk about things that can't be substantiated. So Plato would Correct. love it. So <laughs> Metaphysics, much. ontology. Yeah. So that's, that's what happens in the book. Yes. And I will say... Here, the things that Kurzweil gets more or less correct. Things which actually do depend on Moore's law, he got more or less correct. I would say like 80 to 90%. Yeah, he's wrong on timelines. And this is actually a really important factor, even in considering his claims about things in our future, which continue to have some bearing on Moore's law. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But where he could look at things and see how they would actually be impacted by increasing computational ability, he's often very on point. Except for laser computers. We'll get to that. Yes. And three-dimensional nanotube computing and all, all sorts of related things in that direction. The things he doesn't get right are literally everything that he talks about that don't have directly to do with Moore's Law. Because I will summarize the, the conclusion Stephen and I both came to, I think, as we read this book. Kurzweil does not understand human culture. He understands machines very well. He does not understand things like art or politics or, well everything that aren't machines in human culture, and therefore his predictions about how people will respond and what people will do with these technologies as they appear are wildly, catastrophically wrong. He does also get some things wrong in his predictions for computing because, as I read to you, he has this assumption about the nature of the universe being what drives computing accelerations. And as such, he's very confident that as Moore's Law runs out, as I read a few moments ago, something else will step right in to take its place. And his predictions have to do with lasers and nanotubes and three-dimensional computing and things that, frankly, are still decades away at best. 
And that leads me to the other major problem he does have with even his approach to Moore's law. Everything he does assumes that accelerating returns are continual, that they are, in fact, some kind of effectively universal constant in the same way that, say, the speed of light in a vacuum is a universal constant. His predictions for 2009 are 80 to 90 percent of what we got by 2019. But that kind of slowing is indicative of more fundamental problems with his scheme, even for the parts that he has the best handle on, because it turns out that things aren't just uniformly accelerating that way. And then for the things he doesn't have a good handle on, well, welcome to the next episode. We'll talk about that in detail then. The the functional problems of this book are actually not that it's inconsistent. It's remarkably consistent. Yes. Thoroughgoingly, totally internally consistent, which is, in its own way, a remarkable feat. Almost <laughs> no philosophical tome can actually achieve this. In fact, if John Locke had been better at this, like we would have had a much clearer setup for our American government. That's for you, Jake. <laughs> but there's there's problems with being internally consistent in that part of the way that he envisions the world and the universe working are highly transactional. Right. They are highly structured. There is very little room for people to make weird decisions and not do the normative, logical, rational, straight-line pattern. There is no reason in Kurzweil's system for nationalistic tendencies to be resurgent in the year 2019. (laughs) Because that's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. He does actually... Uh, note on a pretty accurate timeline when uh, backlash towards technology would would start and grow. He pegged around 2009, and that's about the time that Jaron Lanier suddenly decided that things were not going as smoothly as we all had hoped <laughs> and started writing and publishing You Are Not a Gadget. Right. Nick Carr's The Shallows, I think, was 2008. So people were starting to get on the maybe this is not all that we seemed sort of train around that time. But in Kurzweil's estimation, that's a small number of people and it doesn't make that much of a difference. Hopefully you don't think that's true. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. There are dozens of us. There are dozens. 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 (laughs) We can admit that in some specific manners, that's true. The problems come when he starts to move outside his zone. And so the first zone he moves outside of his philosophy. He uses Descartes, which is fine. You would expect that, rationalism. And insofar as you can describe Descartes in two paragraphs, he kind of does okay. He also includes Wittgenstein, which I must admit, I've avoided reading Wittgenstein at almost all. <laughs> just I've just avoided it. That's all I've got to say about that. So I can't really pass judgment on how he uses Wittgenstein. But from what I've read in secondary sources, it seems kind of okay, I suppose. But you may note that those are like two philosophers that are pretty heavily focused on like the rational and normal orderings of the universe. Wittgenstein, again, I don't know from primary sources. So you might be like, what the? That's not true. (laughs) It's what he said. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's what he wrote. So if that's not true, then he's misusing Wittgenstein. And honestly, I would not be surprised if he was a little bit. So, But then after that, he just starts going off the rails. From here, he decides he's going to engage 
very, very briefly, by which I mean for a whopping paragraph, with literally everything else that anybody has said about thought and consciousness and human existence. One paragraph for all the religious traditions. All of them. One. The issue of consciousness and free will has been, of course, a major preoccupation of religious thought, he says, to the extent that this school implies an interference by consciousness in the physical world that runs afoul of scientific experiment, science is bound to win because of its ability to verify its insights. He also didn't predict the verifiability crisis. But you know who did? Philosophers of science whom he clearly (laughs) had not read. He did read The Logical Positivists. <laughs> yeah, he definitely did not read Fierabend or Kuhn. No. And this is endemic to the rest of the book, this sort of hand-waving away massive amounts of thought that have been put to these questions. And you can think, many people do, that matter is all that exists and that consciousness is merely an experiential product of certain sufficiently well-organized matter. And this would be the frame he argues for. He clearly is a fan of Daniel Dennett, whom we'll link uh, some info about in the show notes, who's perhaps the most prominent expositor of and advocate for that view over the last three decades. But you, it turns out, actually need to make an argument about that because there are actually very, very good reasons. And the philosophers have trod these paths well for, oh, I don't know, 2,500 to 3,000 years, depending on when you want to start the argument, start counting on it. And probably longer than that, that's when we have recorded arguments about this from. Yeah. Actually making the strong, very strong claim that matter is all there is and that science can totally verify it has this problem called That's not verifiable as a claim by science. It's a metaphysical, ontological, and yes, epistemological claim. And so he goes throughout the rest of the book doing this kind of thing. I offer this as an example because this is where, as Stephen said, he goes off the rails. Anything that doesn't fit his framework, his priors on these things, namely that the universe has some degree of intelligence and it's ever increasing its intelligence through increasing order, through evolution, then technology is just dismissed. And I wish I could say that I were being uncharitable in saying that, but he literally gives one paragraph to the consciousness is a different kind of stuff mentality, dismisses it, dismisses those 3000 years of well-trod paths and arguments and moves on. The net of this, in any case, is that he thinks, and this is the final claim of this chapter three of Mind and Machines, that, and here I'll just quote the the second to last paragraph, if I scan your brain and nervous system with a suitably advanced, non-invasive scanning technology of the early 21st century, a very high-resolution, high-bandwidth magnetic resonance imaging, perhaps, ascertain all the salient information processes, and then download that information to my suitably advanced neural computer, I'll have a little you, or at least someone very much like you, right here in my personal computer. Note there that he is following through on everything I just suggested. Consciousness is merely information, and therefore... Any computer with enough hardware in it running fast enough can have you in it because he is very, very much of the mentality that you and your body are not really actually meaningfully connected in any way. Your body is, as some denizens of the internet who follow Kurzweil's mentality have taken to calling it, 
a meat sack from which, of course, everyone ought to want to escape because you are really just your mind and your mind is really just information and therefore manipulable and, to make up a word, ascendable. Yeah, and this is particularly consistent because, again, he draws this straight out of Descartes, the mind-body dualism. Right. That's not what Descartes was trying to do, mm-hmm. but that is what people mostly have, I don't know, taken, mis- from, taken from. It's not really a misreading because it's there, but like that's not the end to which Descartes was trying to go. So it is consistent with the brief philosophical attempts that he puts at the beginning. It is particularly pernicious throughout that the body is meaningless. Right. It is a thing to be escaped. It Well, it's that but also it's just sort of like part of the process along the way like it's not like it's a bad thing like it's good as far as it goes but it could go further right it's it's fine but computers will be better that's exactly right because he doesn't say anything negative about the body particularly other than like sidelong glances he just thinks that it's more hardware that we're gonna supersede to the next hardware and so right It's a Pentium 3, and hey, today we've got Core i7s. Right, yeah. And so this is another aspect of the book that's really fascinating, is that he is a ruthlessly optimistic person. (laughs) I like that summary. He Nothing can stand in the face of his optimism. If it (laughs) goes against his optimism, it will be run over by a truck. (laughs) No, No resistance will be brooked. And so there's this stance that he puts sometimes explicitly and most times implicitly that like, if you don't believe me, just wait. And so there's, that's a little bit of a philosophical foul. (laughs) Just a little bit. A little bit. But it is particularly valuable because it allows him to basically just charge forward through everything. The book is almost distressingly readable. (laughs) There are no hedges. There are no discursions. There are no... Uh, sidelong discussions about things that may or may not be relevant that other people have disagreed with. He just (laughs) pounds the narrative. And this goes to literally the very end of the book, the last chapter, the epilogue. He's finished his dialogue with Molly, who has now ascended into union with her digital assistant. But he gets to the epilogue after having finished his dialogue with her, because she's gone now, apparently. He's not paying attention to him anymore. And he has a few other questions. What limitations still exist? What What is she anxious about? What is she afraid of? Do you feel pain? What about babies and children? You know, just some of the most fundamental questions about human existence. He totally elides them, and he just kind of hand waves them at the end. He's like, ah, that's okay. Literal literal quote. But that's okay. We don't need to answer them either. Not yet. We'll just ask the right questions. We have decades to think about the answers. These most essential core ingredients of human existence. Ruthlessly optimistic. <laughs> Yeah. That's going to be the subtitle for the episode. Yeah. Ray Kurzweil's Ruthless Optimism. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing, honestly. It just, it's like having a conversation with someone who won't stop talking. And they just keep digging the hole. And like, you keep yeah. watching it happen. And like, at various points, you're like, could we just stop talking now? Like, you would like <laughs> the conversation to end and the other person right. won't do it. And that is is basically about to get... The time you get to 2099, the chapter, it's just like, I don't even know what we're doing here anymore. Like, the party is over. We're still 
sitting here. I'm an aggressive marker up of books. And by the time I got to the last three chapters, I just gave up. I I was not writing the little X's in it to say this is wrong anymore. One, because that just got really tiring. This is a lot of X's. I was not even writing the little stars in it to say this is critical to his argument. <laughs> I had just given up. I just plowed through them. His fiction goes way off the rails. It's kind of mildly interesting as fiction. Well, it's actually, it's it's incredibly on the rails. It's just like... <laughs> yeah, as fiction. But it goes way off the rails as nonfiction. That's right, yeah. He thinks that, number one, by now we will be talking to extremely advanced digital assistants who are increasingly indistinguishable from the kinds of conversations we might have with people. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but the last time I said, hey, Siri, it was not remotely in that ballpark. Yeah, and by now he means 2019. Yes. The 2009 predictions are f- fairly decent if you forward them 10 years. The 2029 ones, people will have fully fleshed out digital assistants who are passing the Turing test, a famous test devised back in the 1950s by Alan Turing to describe what would actually constitute an intelligence of the sort that we should treat as having rights and so on. It was a thought experiment of how would you how would you be at a point where you could actually tell this? I will link to information about that, as well as John Searle's The Chinese Room argument, as well as a very pithy quote from Jaron Lanier, quoted by Alan Jacobs in his 79 theses, on the nature of the Turing test. To be fair, the Turing test, the Turing test is extremely common. It's not it's yes. probably the least controversial part of his book. After that, we will totally and permanently upload our minds to the cloud and maybe even, he predicts this for Molly, merge them with other digital consciousnesses and in the end go on to solve the problem of entropy for the universe and therefore overcome the problem of the heat death of the universe. That's where the book ends. That's not an exaggeration. That's a I think fair if somewhat critical summary of the book. So, Stephen, any final thoughts and then we'll return to this in our next episode. I think one thing that's important to note about the book is that he believes it. He really does. He believes it so much that he went and wrote a whole other book like six years later or seven years later called The Singularity is Near. Like, this is his jam. Like, this is not a farce. This is not speculative. This is not a thought experiment. This is not an attempt to get more speaking gigs. Like, no. this, this is honest. And it's very influential. A lot of Silicon Valley has hopped on this train with him. Yeah, no, it's true. That's why Google has their Calico defeat death project, which I'm sure is not going to have anything to say to Jurassic Park when we get there. (laughs) I, I think that no matter what you think about the book, you can't say that he's inconsistent. You can't say that he doesn't believe it and that this is just like a farce or a like thought experiment. And you can't say that he doesn't want to be critiqued in this way. Like he is putting forward his ideas into the universe yes. in a real manner. Like this is a real statement of effort in an intellectual enterprise. Like this is not just like us beating up a popularization. Like this is an effort. It's a real book. So I think that it's it's totally fair for us to do this even if we have like a bunch more background reading than he does because like (laughs) he wants to enter that conversation and he's woefully underprepared for that, but that doesn't mean that he is not trying to do it. Yes, indeed. So, so that is, I think an important thing to consider is that we're not just like beating up a straw man here. Like this is a person who wants their ideas considered and validated and uptaken. And the fact that we don't want to do that because of 
a lot of very good reasons <laughs> does not mean that we are like mashing this book unrelentingly for no reason like this is an argument that we need to contend with and so in the next episode that's what we'll do we're gonna contend strenuously bring it <laughs> <laughs> the music at the beginning of the episode is really fascinating it's called king of thumbs by alex dowling it has an extremely extremely coordinated backstory it is set up based on the writings of Yuval Harari, who we can't even begin to explain here, but it has a relationship to Kurzweil. And it's the music is set up sort of as an imagined slash developed ritual, musical, religious experience for the new religion of dataism. It's, it's hard to tell, unlike with Kurzweil, it's hard to tell whether this is like farce, satire... <laughs> real deadly earnest deadly earnest it's compelling music nonetheless um and it's i applaud anyone who takes the efforts to really really think about technology and music and culture together because this piece of music in like the six paragraphs it takes to explain its concept thinks much (laughs) much more carefully about spirituality technology and art than the entirety of Kurzweil's book does. It's particularly closely connected here because Kurzweil does, we didn't dig into it because we didn't want to summarize every single thing he talks about, but he does talk a bunch about computer-generated music. And computer-generated music is a thing. It's not quite like Kurzweil imagined it would be. But this is a really interesting point of connection to it that is influenced in many ways by some of the trends that Kurzweil identified, even if where Kurzweil thought they would go wasn't quite on yeah and this is an improvised piece of music but it's also sort of not the same thing as like a jazz improvised piece of music there's like (laughs) a a sort of script that goes with it so i i I commend it to you it's a fascinating work um it comes from the piece called reality rounds and it is really interesting conceptually and it just is pretty our thanks to alex dowling for letting us use the music Please don't use it without permission, but please do go check it out. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Thanks to everyone who is sponsoring the show. On that note, we're doing a bunch more stuff with Patreon, so come check it out. We're posting things we're reading, we're posting notes on that reading, we're posting bonus audio tracks, and if you're at the $10 or more tier, you get to have your own dedicated thread in the chat app that we use where we'll chat with you. So hit us up. You can also just contact us via email at hello at winningslowly.org. On Twitter, kind of, at at winningslowly. On Facebook, even more kind of, at winningslowlypodcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Please don't use it. Please. We're good at this. Please don't use it. Please don't. It's over.